Let's do a quick audio test. We like to ask our guests to name five of something. So for you, let's name five things everyone must try at Panda Express. Five things must try at Panda Express. First one is our signature orange chicken, okay? Number two is our compound chicken, which is one of my favorite as well. And then number three is the black pepper Angus steak, something that's dear to my heart. I'll tell you about a little bit later. The fourth one is our honey wanna shrimp. And the last one, you'd be surprised. I actually encourage people to try our super green, which is our freshest take on vegetable. Imagine just broccoli, kale, and cabbage. Really straightforward. Love that. You came prepared. You sound good. Let's do this. Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm a chef by trade and hospitality professional. By day, I head up Rachel Ray's culinary operations and co-founded her cooking and kids charity called Yummo. Five years ago, I had the idea to put together a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Hence, the name Beyond the Plate. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you listened before, we're so glad you're back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or, like a chef's sweet feature, make a difference in your community. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. One more thing, we have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch. You can find a link in your podcast player or go to our website, beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, hoodies, and more. Again, that's beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Today's guest leads the vision and growth of the largest family-owned and operated Asian dining concept in America, Panda Express. He oversees the team responsible for creating and implementing recipes as well as cook training across more than 2,300 Panda Express restaurants around the world. He has over 20 years of experience in the industry with a background as restaurateur, chef, and educator, and in 2021 was honored in Nation's Restaurant News Chef Power List. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with Chef Jimmy Wang. Chef, it's an honor to have you here, sir. So good to be here, Cappy. We're going to jump right in here. As Executive Director of Culinary and Product Innovation at Panda Restaurant Group, the vision and let's call it responsibility you have for, I'm using air quotes, American Chinese cuisine is really on a very different level than a lot of chefs we've spoken with on Beyond the Plate. They may have one restaurant or two. It's pretty extraordinary, I think, when I try to wrap my head around it. <laughs> so I'm curious, like, what is the mission or the driving force for Panda Express as we're celebrating, I think it's close to, if not the 40th anniversary? Yeah, definitely. The company itself has been established since 1983. And the mission or the main focus is from my lens, particularly, really is trying to connect communities and also be a bridge to the American when it comes to what is the authentic way that they can taste the cuisine that maybe myself and our founder or just in general, what Chinese cuisine can be, right? And so by cooking, combining with cooking, and then using sort of the ingredients that people are known of from the States, and then transfer and then transplant into that the recipes that people can understand and enjoy, and ultimately find that connection and comfort. And that's always something that we care about, and then that's our driving force. Love that. I think a lot of people don't recognize the Panda Restaurant Group actually started as a f nicer 
finer dining, if you will, Chinese restaurant in Glendale, California, if I'm not mistaken, called Panda Inn, which still exists to this day. But I and I my main producer, Shant, of this podcast grew up in Glendale. So he grew up his entire childhood going to Panda Inn and loves it. But can you share how Panda Express came about? Sure. Our Panda Inn restaurant actually started in the city of Pasadena. That's the very first location. We call it the mothership, right? And then, of course, from that opportunity, our founder, the business itself, kind of grow within a community. And people just love the food. And then there is a, a business opportunity to have a location that's attached to the Glendale Galleria Mall. And this was kind of like, imagine 80s, right? Food court. People are starting to move on to this space of like, I want fast, I want quick. And then the business opportunity was, hey, can Panda do that? Can Panda do the same taste, the same food, but done it in a way that didn't feel like you need to like formally sit down, be served by a waiter. And also people can find themselves being sort of like, hey, I'm, I'm shopping, but I'm also can kind of take a segue and then get some really good Chinese food and then be on my way. And that's the genesis of it, right? And of course, the business opportunity came and then we got a chance to move into the Galleria and open the first Panda Express. I love that. And so you mentioned your founder, Andrew, I believe his name is, and was his father was the chef initially of Panda Inn? Yeah, our founder, Andrew Chern, his father's name is Ming Sai Chern. He's actually a classically trained Setuanese chef. And of course, he was at the helm originally at the Panda Inn before he retired. So imagine this kind of father and son duel sort of created this brand, this business itself. And ultimately, the food itself become it morph, right? It evolved over time. Citronese essence still there, but a lot of flavor profile really came from our founder's origin, which is from Yangzhou, China. And then, of course, right, we are feeding the mass. So during that time, there's a lot of emphasis on sort of this flavor profile called Mandarin that covers a lot of different territories and regionalities. And then that became sort of the focus of our food. Love it. So for many Americans, Panda Express could be their first exposure to Chinese food, Chinese inspired food. How does this make you feel? Actually, actually, I have twin four-year-olds who I've taken them out to various Asian cuisine-esque restaurants and they try things, but I took them to Panda Express for their first time Saturday night. We had the cub meals. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's good to hear. I know that it, it certainly is the gateway to a lot of folks right across the United States. And I can speak to my personal story. I remember freshman in high school, I got a chance to hang out with a couple of different folks, just friends from basketball team. And then we were supposed to grab a bite afterwards, right? And I remember me going to a nearby Chinese market and bought the food similarly, right? Like uh, some sort of chicken, some sort of beef item over rice. And then I, for some reason that day, I also felt like I was compelled that I need to also stop by Panda Express again, something similar and brought up both of them to them. And then needless to say that all of them gravitate towards the Panda food. And basically the reason why is the visual, the color appearance, the way the food speaks to people is connection, is comfort, right? They found comfort looking at the Panda food right away. While the other food may be extraordinary, Maybe after taste, of course, 
but somehow the connections to our food right away is was panda. How do you describe American Chinese cuisine? I would say that for us, our philosophy really is focusing on. We always want to focus on the Chinese origin, right? And then you know, because we are living in the United States, it's a big melting pot. It has a lot of global influences. So that would be the second part. And the third part is we are feeding Americans, right? So there is got to be a way. That we can connect to that American perspective across the board, West Coast to East Coast, small town to big town, blue collar, white collar, right? And then so when you combine those three to us, that's what American Chinese cuisine is about. That's really interesting. Let's talk orange chicken, because how can we not? Safe to say you all made it famous here, huh? Uh, yeah, <laughs> you can say that for sure. <laughs> Give us the orange chicken story. Although I want to back up a second because it's interesting you mentioned that, like using traditional flavors and things. Because I don't think a lot of Americans are used to, whether they go to Panda Express or another Chinese restaurant that may be catering to Amer an American palate, I don't think people realize dishes like Kung Pao are traditional Chinese dishes. I think they're throwing, they, they think they're seeing sweet and sour this, or, and they just think that it's like an Americanized thing. But I don't think, I don't think they realize there's like a number of dishes that actually are traditional Chinese dishes. You know, often enough that all the dishes that people are familiarized through the American Chinese cuisine definitely have a Chinese origin at one point. Imagine immigrants, migrants that came to this country. They want to make a specific recipe, right? But it's lacking the ingredients or the resources. So what do we do, right? We, we morph, we, we adapt, right? We didn't get the traditional gai lan, which is Chinese broccoli. So what's the next best thing? Something a little bit bitter, a little bit crunchy. And then, of course, they're like, hey, broccoli might be it. Like, next thing you know, instead of making the traditional beef and gai lan, now they're making beef and broccoli. And essentially, that is a Chinese dish, but it's popularized because it was made with broccoli, right, in That's the States. Example. So compound chicken shared a similar story. It is a famous dish within the Sichuan region. And of course, our founder's father was a, such a unique chef in the Sichuanese cuisine. He wanted to create his version of American Chinese Kung Pao. So it, it does have all the full flavor of the boldness, but he added a lot of freshness to it by adding different vegetables to it, right? And that's kind of the way Panda is. We're always focusing on making sure that we didn't lose the essence or the origin of how the dish came about, but it's how are we going to adapt to it that each person can find a connection and then that they can say that, well, I understand that now because I recognize something within this dish. And then, then once they had it, they're like, hey, yeah, I do can imagine myself eating this again because I understand it now, right? We want to make that a connection first before we try to oversell you this idea of what this taste is. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool that you get to tell that story and your team gets to tell that story. I love that. Okay, back to orange chicken. Give us the story there. Sure, orange chicken. So imagine is a business trip, right? Our founder, the previous executive chef, Andy Kao, they're in Hawaii, they're doing their business. And of course, you know, there was a task by the founder to the chef and says that they need something special here, right? And then the chef, of course, start to work on the idea, doing a sort of a citrus flavor glazed dish. So imagine he 
fried up crispy chicken, and then trying to think about sort of what kind of flavor could it influence or give the essence to the citrusiness. And then he thought of, you know what, California, throughout the United States, there's a lot of different citruses around. So orange seems kind of tops it all, right? So imagine now orange is in play. And then, of course, the chef himself, he was actually classic trained in Hunan cuisine. So this is a, a, a region that's known for chili and heat, garlic, aromas and things like that. So just one, two, three combo combined together. That kind of became the birth of the first iteration of orange chicken. Right. And then our founder tried it. He was like, oh, my God, this is great. Let's just let's just test it out in the market. But our founder was also some in a space where like, hey, guess what? Like this, this is complicated. It's very big. It's hard to eat. And then so he recommended that, hey, shouldn't we make that a little bit more bite-sized? Why don't we do even more? Why don't we get rid of all the bones? Let's just go with all meat, right? Let's just celebrate this dish by making it easier to eat, very easy to enjoy from between kids and adults. And then that slowly become the item that we have today. That's so fascinating. And, and you think of like the business behind community and bringing people what they want, as you've referenced. And I can't help but think of this story, not to digress, but I think you'd appreciate it. There was a story, don't quote me on it, but it's something along the lines of Serio Maccioni, who used to be with Le Cirque, traveled to, I forgot it was Spain. It was, I don't think it was France and tried a flan type dish and he came back to his executive pastry chef at Le Cirque at the time, who was a gentleman named Dieter Schorner and created what is today's creme brulee. And he, Dieter Schorner would never take credit for inventing creme brulee. He always says he reinvented creme brulee, which is really funny, but there's, there's a, a brilliant restaurant owner in Serio Maccioni who had this vision and had the great team behind him and tasked him with bringing it to life, similar to what orange chicken came to be in the eighties to what it is today. It's pretty wild. Yeah. yeah. Reinvention. Yeah. That's key. So what a, like, what's a typical day look like for you? Is there a typical day for you? <laughs> Nothing is typical here. But if you want to say what are some of the things I've done as a more of a routine basis, we do spend a lot of time talking and meeting regarding to how are we looking ahead, right? That's in, in terms of meeting wise. We're constantly thinking about how to move ahead, thinking about looking ahead thinking about the future. So that's the conversation that we're constantly having between my team and other cross-functional team members. From the actual perspective, we, my team are consists of 50% technologists. They are food scientists. They work with manufacturers. They have food science backgrounds. And the other 50% of the team is culinary-based. They're in charge of different parts of the culinary from our international menu, to our core menu functionalities, all the way to new menu innovation process as well. Wow. How long have you been with Panda? I've been with Panda for about eight years, a little over eight years. Was that structure, if you will, like in place? Did you help put it in place or fine tune it? I'm just curious. It's something that makes complete sense that I never really thought about. When I came, the team was roughly about five people, right? Today we're at 12. And then so during that time when we were five people, the functionality, obviously, there are some resemblance of it, but definitely we have singular focuses, right? We focus on new menu items. That was really the role and the responsibility. Today, we are much bigger than that. 
right? We are focusing on food manufacturing, commercialization. We're focusing on strengthening the core menu by optimizing continuous improvement. We are growing our international market. We're about 100 store worldwide now. We are actually supporting our operation when it comes to back of the house, optimizing how they can make their service better, improve their process, making their food more accurate, right? And then finally, we are constantly looking for ways to add new menu items or having what we call the LTO, limited time offer, to the menu. Got it. If you add a new entree, are you like, do you have to remove one? I mean, you're probably constantly looking at that menu mix, right? Like, are you like, are you like oh, we already have, I'm making this number up, eight entrees. Like, we can't put a ninth or and a tenth. So like, or are you seeing how you can handle that growth or maybe replacing it with an underperformer? Or is it kind of a combination of all of that? I think it's all of it. We did have items that we launch as a limited time offer that did really, really well. And then eventually we're like, hey, guess what? It should be on the menu because people love it. Why not? Right. And of course, there are data supporting that. There's always information that can back it. What's the last item that was an LTO that like made it more widespread across stores? Perfect timing. One of the five dishes I mentioned that people should try, one of them is black pepper Angus steak. And that was an item that started out as an LTO and became a core item. Give you a little bit of background. This dish was inspired by my childhood. I grew up in Taiwan. And then growing up as a kid, I always remember going to these small kind of street side shops that makes these sizzling steaks. Imagine beef that's cooked on a plancha, and then it's got a like a nice savory black pepper gravy on top. So that was always something that I kind of felt like, hey, that is very American, but also very Chinese at the same time. And so we don't work on that. We keep testing it for about four to five years and just never could take off. Right. And finally, we found a way to kind of elevate it. And then the dish actually tested well. And then we decided to launch it as an LTO. And then ultimately what happened is the, the guest loves it too. They love the idea, the taste of it, the savoriness. And then we decided to keep on the core menu and has been on there ever since. Love that. What would you say is the hardest part of your job? The hardest part of my job, I would say, is predicting the future. Because we're always thinking ahead, right? As I mentioned earlier. Now, imagine to trying to understand what the consumer wants and needs before they do, I think that's always the hardest thing to do. And then the second part about predicting the future is also really making sure that we had the capability and do our job well, right? We don't want to do this 50%. If we're gonna do it, we're gonna go all the way. That's always been our mantra as a group, as a company, as an organization. And then we wanna make sure that whatever we put out is the you know best foot forward. Yeah. Like that. What's the most fun part? Uh, the fun part really is with working with people, working with groups of people that cares about it just as much as you do, right? From communication level to the creative side, to my own team who are constantly, constantly thinking about innovating, creating. And, and we always joked around, right? We're the type of team that you give me a piece of paper, I end, end up selling you a boat <laughs> or something like that, right? And then so... That's the that's where everything's at. That's where the jazz is. That's where the fun stuff, right? And then that 
gets me excited coming to work on a day-to-day basis. Talk to me about Chef Camp. Sure. Chef Camp, the idea started maybe, I would say, six years ago. We constantly talk about there are jobs or act the projects that you execute on. You do your job, you, you get it done, that's good. But where is the space of design and think and play, right? And we don't usually think about stuff like that, right? Because it's all about execution. And then so six years ago, we created a space that we decided to take ourselves out of a typical environment. We actually rented a kitchen so that we are not bombarded by the surrounding, right? And then when we go in there, we drop everything behind and we go in there for 30 days. 30 days, you maximize your creativity. You just keep creating, 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 creating as many concepts, as many, as many ideas as you can. And and doesn't matter where it goes. It doesn't mean that every item in there is going on the menu. It doesn't mean that the item are meant to go on the menu. It just there's a space for you to just create and let that innovative juice out. And that's what the ethos of what Chef Camp is. And we've been doing it since six years ago. And then now every year we've done it once a year. And each year we have some design behind it or thinking behind it. And then usually that's when you see the most out of the box thinking. You see the people are most connected with food, connected with ingredients, connect with stories. And and I think that's the, the emotion we always wanted from the people who made the food, right? Because then if you if you made the food in that kind of way, then the food can be tasted that way through the guests. Is there a dish or idea or something that came from a recent chef camp or something that comes to mind? I'm so curious. As a matter of fact, it is. There, there is a dish that we will be launching soon is as a limited time offer. And the idea is building a, a, a dish, a sauce, right? that has the natural umami from tomato, especially sort of that tomato paste, that aged tomato taste, right? And then then combine that with heat, chili, flavor, like that, right? And then imagine fresh vegetables, like peppers and baby broccoli, broccolini, right? And then on shrimp. It it almost reminds you a little bit of scampi but yet when you taste it is completely chinese that's cool i like that are you headed to taiwan at the end of this month for a tasting trip is that chef camp or is that something different yeah 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 my team so now this this is usually something that we like to do before the camp if we can right so prior to camp what we like to do is we like to spend some time visiting or it's basically research market research Right. So we had done market research across the globe in a way that we had gone to Hong Kong, China, Singapore. We had gone to Vancouver. We had gone to China. And then we even done one year, we done a deep dive into United States. We went to over 15 states within about a week and a half or so. Right. And so for us, we like to do that part of the camp to get everybody kind of thinking and then already hyped excited about the opportunity, but also in their head, there's already a good sort of foundation that what they're inspired by, right? So therefore they can execute against that. And then so for us, because the pandemic shut down, because everything else happened after, we haven't really taken a a trip like this. 
And then so I really encourage the opportunity. And then we are actually heading to where I'm from, Taiwan. Nice. And how many go on this trip? I would say it varies. I mean, we had times where we went with four people, maybe three. At this time, we're bringing a team of five. Nice. And what? so what's that experience? Is it centered around food, obviously, and meals? We want to center around food, first of all. We want to understand culture, right? I mean, there's the culture of sort of origins, histories. But we also want to understand the culture of like, Hey, what what is now, right? How is food have more? The recipes that I grew up with as a kid versus what that recipe is now today, how it's been readapted or reinterpreted, and then the adaptation of the changes, right? And then and then seeing that culture change, how does that correlate to the work that we do here? Which is again, we're we're connecting the communities, right? And then we're using our food to make sure that people can understand our food, but also understand that little culture as well. Got it. Like that. So when you come back, that gets tied into Chef Camp, which is all kind of tied into the Innovation Kitchen, I suppose. So Innovation Kitchen is something that we started in 2014 in Pasadena. We asked ourselves one question, right? Now that you have all the ideas in the world, right? How do you want people to, how do you want to engage guests? How do you want to engage customer? And we're like, hey, yeah, although the idea sounds great, but if you can't put it in the practical format for people to try it and then give you feedback, then what's the point, right? So of course, from the chef camp perspective, what we will do is we will actually filter through some of the ideas that we, we, we feel like that it's ready to meet the world, right? There's always a few of those that you just know, like, hey, let's go. Let's let's give it a try. And then we'll take it to our innovation kitchen where we'll put up as a special, right? Sometimes it's three weeks, sometimes it lasts three months. Who knows? Just out there meeting the guests face-to-face and then see if guests can see it and, and says, hey, I like this idea or I want to try this idea. And then maybe even give us a little bit of feedback after all. I'm still so curious about like the notion of scale, like in your line of work. Can you give us just like a high level view on like a new menu item, like an idea? I think we kind of have the gist of how an idea may come about through these various points that you reference. But to just seeing it, I guess it would go as a special or a limited time offering to mass scale like at hundreds of locations or thousands. So yes, that is one of my, the unique part of my job, right? I'm no longer thinking about a hundred covers <laughs> a night. I'm no longer thinking about the 50 guests that's walking through on Monday to Friday. I'm, I'm thinking about in the space of consistency. I'm thinking about a space of what can I do to make sure that there is a way to easily implement it into the system where a kid that just started about four months ago, three months ago, versus a veteran that's been working for us for 15, 16 years, that sees the recipe, sees the ingredients, and they can identify it. They can read through the recipe, watch the training video, and, and replicate it. And that's very different, right? We have time to prepare especially when you think about the scale that we're dealing with. Naturally, we're talking about over 40,000 employees, right? 
and and things like that really needs to come into preparation. So which means that most of the things that we're thinking about testing, launching, the work has been done almost a year, a little over a year ago, maybe even more, a year and a half ago, right? Think, thinking about the so- ingredient sourcing, right? We got to think about think about the special, special ingredient that goes into the sauce. All those items from the supply chain level, we have to secure those things first in order to get to the final result that we make it and then take it to our store and that could be executed by those employees. So most of or all of those cooks that I see tossing a walk back there have watched a training video on how that dish comes together. Yes, they do. They have a written recipe. We have training video for them. We have training webinars. We have what we call a learning module. We train different levels of trainers. Imagine we train the area leaders, we train the general managers, then the general managers does another cascade training down to their associates. Then the associates will actually have a few days where they do kind of like almost like a test sale, right? Just get familiarized with the recipe and then before the big launch. It's so important. And I love, I like geek out about this stuff. And you mentioned something called consistency, which I think is like one of the most important words in the kitchen. I mean, whether it's one restaurant or over 2,300 restaurants. The importance of that from a industry, from an employee, and also the importance of it from the diner. You know, I mean, my brother owns one Chicago-style hot dog stand, and I always say to him, if one person said to their friend, you need to go to Josh's Hot Dogs to try their Grecian chicken pita, and that day the dressing isn't made right, it's oversalted, it's undersalted, the bread's over-toasted, under-toasted, and that person has a bad experience, they may not come back. And that's just one, one dish and one restaurant. And there's multiple variables on that one dish. And just I'm just like imagining you all with the number of dishes, the number of variables, the number of locations, the number of cooks, like that consistency is so key, you know, to be able to go to the Panda Express that I went to in Chicago the other night and then maybe stop at the airport because I saw a Panda Express in like the Charlotte airport last week. And is my meal going to taste the same? Daunting (laughs) or exciting, (laughs) depending on how you look at it. (laughs) Yeah, it certainly is a huge change from what I previously done. Right. And then so when I came into this role and this responsibility, there's definitely a lot of things I need to learn and learning more around how to make the recipe more approachable, how to make sure that I understand how people absorb information. Right. And then it's, you know, when you train for the masses, you there's no not, there's not a, a individual handholding I could have done, but I need to understand how information is being absorbed. And then also, when do they want to take in that information? And then finally is, where's the pressure coming from, right? From a GM level, who's struggling? Who's not struggling? And then, so how do we make sure that we lend a hand to them to make sure that they feel supported? And, and that's becoming part of my job, part of my responsibility. I mean, look, we had Chef Yotam Adolengi earlier this season, who's like, he's known around the world for his books and his beautiful cuisine and his vegetable dishes and all this and two different types of 
places and people, Autolenghi versus Panda Express, but him too. He talked about the dishes and how do we simplify and how does it land on the table? And, you know, these are huge things. I love this conversation. Um, you were talking about your large role with, you said, 40,000 employees, cooks, team members. How do you make these people feel seen? and heard. It gets a lot of people to keep happy, if you will. I think every industry, it's built by people, right? And the foundation of the restaurant business or hospitality is built by people. So we definitely are people focused. You know, for as a panda wise, we are, are a company that really care about the growth of people. So for a lot of the associates, they can see themselves actually look at Panda not just as a stepping stone, but more of a, a, a career choice, right? I see that a lot of our management or our operation leaders started as hourly wage workers, right? And they started serving scoops of orange chicken at a time, right? Or was back at the house tossing and walking the entrees. And then today they are the leaders of a region of, of over maybe 600 stores. So to, to say that, that's really focusing on the fact that we want our employee to feel like this is home to them, that they can grow with us, that they want to grow with us, and then that they have examples and models in front of them that it's obtainable, right? Not to go into too much detail, we even have individualized training program where GMs are implementing to help the, the hourly associates to become a system manager someday. And we have a system managers and general manager that's in training so that someday they can become a multi-unit manager, area manager, right? And then we also have cooks that aspire to want to be the chef of the location, even if that means that they had to transfer from one location to another which is a, another benefit that we have as an organization, right? If you think about it within a, a restaurant, typical one store, two store restaurants, the, the idea is that your career path is very limited. At some point you have to look elsewhere, but because we have 2,300 locations, the need is everywhere, right? The opportunity is everywhere as long as you're willing to jump on it. I think those are the things that definitely is very enticing to our employees who want to stay with us and that they can see themselves maybe become a homeowner, right? Become a property owner someday. And therefore, it gives them the opportunity to obtain that dream, keep them happy and have that awareness. And, and that's something that I see on a day-to-day -day basis. Hey everyone, want to take a quick second to give some love to our friends at Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Cappy, my mouth, it's already watering. But please tell me, Cappy, have you tried those new sweet dinner potato rolls and sweet hearty potato rolls? I have, and I'm a fan. No, I mean, those are just amazing, right? I mean, it's two Martin's potato rolls and bread products and a little sweeter. It's coming all together, right? Yeah, amazing. They're kind of like new and improved or just improved or kind of new. They have these two products. They're sweet dinner potato rolls and sweet party potato rolls. One's a little smaller than the other, but they're still super soft and fluffy and made with great ingredients. And you're probably gonna wanna check these out. Yeah, well, of course, we both checked them out. So everyone listening, 
gotta check them out. Anyway, here's a little bit more on Martins. Martins is an all-American family-owned and operated company founded in 1955 and headquartered in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Last year, Ian, Martins donated nearly 40,000 pounds of bread and rolls to charitable causes. More on that in a second. They are the number one potato roll in America, and as I always like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better. Back to that charitable component, Martin's mission encompasses more than just baking the best bread and providing good American jobs. They also believe in giving back to their community and the world around them. So through volunteering time and donating resources, they support hundreds of charitable organizations such as food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief, and others that provides sustenance and comfort to people in need, both close to their baking facilities and abroad. To learn more about Martin's and check out some great recipes, go to potatorolls.com and follow them on social media at potatorolls. Martin's, we thank you. Okay, Kathy, back to this week's episode. So in this role with Panda Restaurant Group, you're, you're combining your Asian heritage, your classic French training, which is super cool, and your passion for food and food exploration. I want to now get to your Asian heritage. You said you were born in Taiwan. Is that where you grew up? Yes, I was born and raised there until age of 14. Taiwan had a lot of meaning to me. I think it set a specific foundation of my life, growing up speaking Chinese, obviously, and then sort of absorbing all the culture that's within that island. But at the same time, it was also kind of the, it was very unique because Taiwan itself also has a little bit of melting pot. It has a lot of transplant. It has a lot of multicultural influences because of all the nearby countries. And it's a young country, right? And so because of those reasons, I have experienced English tunes, right? American cheeseburger <laughs> to sort of the Japanese fried chicken to the Korean kimchi stews. And Although those were all around me, but of course, it wasn't recognized when I was a child. And then ultimately had the opportunity to move to the States. And, and, and then in that, in that transfer, in that moment, I, I do miss home because that was something I was very comfortable with. And then that was the language I spoke. And all of a sudden, I landed in the country where I know nothing. Basically, just know my name. How old were you when you came here? I was 14. So your family growing up in Taiwan typical family like when it came to food yeah i i kind of owe all this to sort of everything i am today or what i do or or even my passion for food really owe it to my family right because why i said that is because my father itself himself he was the the type of guy that doesn't like to eat out he prefers to eat at home and then so and then my mom because of that, my mom would have to figure out how to always cook something different and new to keep things interesting. So she's constantly watching, like, imagine food channels or, or talking to other moms, like trying to, like, find recipes or learn recipes and adapt them and then turn into something that she can make at home and then serve it to us. My dad was a classic we call it a three entree and a soup guy. Basically, it has to be like a variety of different things to eat plus a soup. Then, then he's satisfied, right? And then dinner is always at seven, never changes, right? That's when he comes back from home. He puts his slippers, change out from his work clothes, and we sit together and eat. So in some way, that really set that foundation for me because you know something about eating together for a meal is is 
it's that, that connection for me, right? That, that way to connect with people. And then one side story is that because also that reason, my dad doesn't like to eat out. So therefore he likes to host people. So his friends or his colleagues, and they will always come by. And then, so imagine I live on the fourth floor apartment building. There is the rooftop. So my dad actually built a, 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 a separate house, essentially, on this rooftop, just so that he can entertain guests. And, and then, so I was like, basically like a little food runner, right? My mom would make the dishes and I would run it upstairs, serve on the table. That's my first waiter job, right? But what's most important about that memory, particularly or that story is the gratitude from the guests. I remember, you know, being a little bit more sort of Asian Chinese culture, when the guests leave, we always kind of stand by the door and then kind of greet them, say goodbye. And I remember standing there watching each sort of guest as they walked out, the way they shook my mom's hand with that levels of connection and gratitude, I it's, it's, it's amazing. You saw that, you remember that as a kid. I remember that. It's clear to me, very, very clear to me. And then so that was something that I was like, wow, to to meet that satisfaction at that level, that's something, right? That's that's not money, that's not price, right? That's that's connection, that's a that's an emotion. And and that kind of set a tone for me. That's cool. Was your mom a good cook? She was fantastic. Did she like it? Or was it a cultural thing where she had to cook, if you will, or did she and yes and she enjoyed it or what, what was that i think both right well yes you're right I, I think she's doing her best as a a homemaker and and trying to make sure that her her family are, are happy right on the other hand she was somebody who is also very inventive i mean i had to say right sometimes she would come like there was like nothing on the table and then hour later there's like everything on the table I, I just don't get that right i think she'd take pride in that for sure did you watch her in the kitchen or get involved at all i did i i, I was always watching her the way she moves in the kitchen she had a a temple like something about she knows how to move in that space she knows exactly what's boiling not boiling that was something very interesting right because I didn't understand the technique then, but I just knew that she was always in control. And and then I always admired that. It's like, how does mom able to like cut fish and fabricate meat while she has like six other things on the stove, right? And then, but she always know like, oh, don't, like I remember this one particular moment, like I saw something was boiling. I wanted to go turn it off for her. And she just kind of slapped my hand real quickly and go like, don't touch me. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> She's like, I'm reducing your sauce or soup or whatever. Yeah, exactly. That's funny. So do you remember like the first thing you cooked? Was it in that kitchen? Yeah. Uh, interesting. It's not in my childhood home. I There's there's two things that I can remember cooking that's important to me, right? First one was in high school. I, I think there was a some kind of business class that we had to kind of set up like as a, a group activity where we'll create a company or we'll create a business. And was high school, you had, when you were 14, did you move to the Los Angeles area? Yeah. And yeah. so high school was in LA or? High school was in LA. I went to a, a high school called Temple City. Currently I'm like, I live literally like 10 miles away from that place. Yeah. So high school, Temple City, I think is junior year. We had to do a, some sort of small business class. 
And then we decided to open a small restaurant. But of course, we're not serving any guests inside the, the restaurant per se. But the idea is to do a takeaway business. And then so the item that I really wanted the school campus teachers to buy was a salt and pepper chicken, right? This is kind of the, the classic street food I grew up with in Taiwan. They call it popcorn chicken. Imagine the chicken that's marinated, coated with potato starch, and then eventually heavy salt and pepper with chili. And then when we fry, we always fry with some Thai basil so that it has like specific aroma. That sounds great right now as I say it, but when I tried to make it, I murdered <laughs> it, right? Completely. I mean, I burned myself so bad. I, I think I burned my classmates. I think everything was a disaster. By the time I got the chicken to the, the teachers, I was literally 45 minutes late. They were, they were not happy. They were hungry. But I think I did nail the taste, though, because I did distinctly remember there was a few of those glimpses of satisfaction I remember as a kid that I saw from those faculty members. So I think that was the first time I officially made food for business, right? The other other thing that I made for the first time or I continue to make is beef noodle soup. This is tied to another childhood memory or story is my grandfather teaching me sort of, if you're going to make something, make the best of it, right? So beef noodle soup, classically, imagine sort of braised shanks, the broth made from beef bones, chewy noodles, depends on where you're from, could have chili or tomato, and then some sort of bright green vegetable, lots and lots of scallion, hot, right? Broth, all that good stuff. So my grandfather would go to the specific market, require three bus rides, and then that he will get up at six o'clock in the morning, and then just so that he could get to this market and buy the freshest cut of the shanks from maybe the kill from maybe 24 hours ago. And then, then he will stop by another market to buy these fresh milled flour so that he can make these thick noodles. And then, of course, he'll bargain for some free bones <laughs> while he was at it. And then it will cook for maybe four to five hours in between the preparation to the time that he's ready to share with us. But that was the only thing my grandfather could. That was the only thing he cares about when, when it comes to making it from the details. And, and that was like that perfect example that he showed me that if you're going to eat something, if you're going to make sure somebody's happy eating something, is to put in the effort, right? For him, he want to make me happy. He want to make my sister happy. So therefore, he was willing to get up at six o'clock in the morning and go through four to five hours of the work just to make sure that that bowl of beef noodle is the best version that he thinks he can put up with. That's so wild. You ever think about some of this stuff? Like when you were little, like the effect that that had on you to like do something right and make it taste good and the best to the effect of your mom in the kitchen and people respecting her and connecting with her and your dad wanting to entertain his friends and community. Like, and then look at where you are right now and like your role. It's like, I feel like all these things are, like you were prepared, you know, like as a young kid to, to have this responsibility in a different 
scale, different level, but it's, just, I, I love kind of connecting those dots of how yeah. you were as a kid. Yeah. I'm fortunate, right? I mean, you know, out of the typical environment, my parents would have wanted me to be either doctor, lawyer, right? All those opportunities because we came to the States never in their mind that they thought I would become a chef and then doing culinary, but they also didn't know that they made such an impression on me, right? They just didn't know. And then did it become that hospitality was something that they actually sort of it's just how they lived their game. life kind of but yeah. it's, it was a good yeah. real positive thing right right it was a gift that they just didn't know they yeah. gave it to me. what did you do after high school a lot of things i don't i'm not going to go into too many details but i wasn't the school type let's just put it that way i tried i tried but it wasn't dabble many different things and then ultimately, I think the, the idea was always sort of as long as I work hard, as long as I know what I'd like to do and I can do them, I can I can be good at it. I can excel. Right. And then so my first approach to restaurant job was actually a Japanese restaurant because I saw them on TV. I just love the idea that Jeff Chef, Japanese chef has this mantra in them, their, their artistry. Right. So I was like, wow, I want to beat that. Right. And so I became an apprentice, basically doing all the, the hard work. But I was also so young. So essentially, I'm looking at what I'm getting paid for and then how hard I had to work. And I never even got to touch a seafood. Right. And then so I, I quit pretty early. Right. And then but it was actually my wife who encouraged me to really think about what I want to do for the rest of my life, because it was the birth of my son that really got us thinking. What is that one skill set that I produce, I, I possess, that it's gonna carry with the rest of my life, right? Hey, it's okay, right? If you didn't study, you didn't go to college, it's okay. But let's make sure you have one skill set, right? That's really, really good. And she always asked me what I want to do, and I say I want to work with my hands. And then the idea of culinary came back on. I was like, you know what? Maybe I should go get educated, like properly trained. So I went to culinary school at night. And this was a school in Pasadena called CSCA, California School of Culinary Arts. Then became Le Cordon Bleu. And then the same location today is called the Institute of Culinary Education. But that's where I went to get my education and then my actual education in a way, right? So you went to culinary school at night. What were you doing during the day? I worked for an exhibition trade show company. So imagine I built booths, I built displays at trade shows and things like that. What did you think you were going to do? So you start in the Cordon Bleu or you start in the culinary academy, the culinary school. What did you think you were going to do out of school or what did you wind and what did you wind up doing? Oh man, it was so many things. I think I knew I couldn't pursue the Michelin route. And I, and look, I, I'm not trying to mur murder Michelin, right? I, I'm just simply saying that during that time, the, the information in front of me was go to culinary school and then go work for a, a very important restaurant, follow a big name chef, and then earn your start, right? That was the information was given to me at that time. This was, you know, before crazy cell phones and, and social media, okay? But that was what's taught. That was the driven focus, right? Fine dining, fine dining, fine dining. And then, but I, I had a kid already, right? I, I had to take care of my family. I was a career changer. And, and so 
That was never in my thought. How old were you when you went to school? I think I was already 20, 23. Yeah, I was already 23, actually. I knew I wasn't going to end up working for a fine dining restaurant with a big name chef and then kind of follow the, the chef around, kind of earn my stripe and then maybe chasing after a Michelin star because I was already a young father, already had a young family. And then that I, what I really need to focus on was to know as much aspect of the food and beverage business as possible. Like what is like for me to dabble into various different environment, right? So right out of the school, I ended up working for a hotel. I ended up working for the Ritz-Carlton for a bit and really kind of try every department within the organization. I've done banquet, I've done garanger, I've done fine dining, I've done pastry event. After that, I wanted to learn what it's like to work for a small mom and pop that I had to do everything, right? It's like a a group of four people that runs a shop that sits 50 seats. You have to do the ordering. You have to deal with fabrication schedules. You only have one day off. I wanted that intensity. And then after that, I wanted to understand what it's like to work for maybe like a, a formal sit down, maybe like a steakhouse, like maybe a little bit of Chang aspect. So I did that. I started for a couple of different places, all this different experiences was what I needed it to continue search for what the ultimate goal was always about, right? And then, so through those opportunities, I got the chance to open up my own restaurant. That was Hot Stuff Cafe? That was Hot Stuff Cafe. Paint a picture of that restaurant for us. When we walk in the door, what do we, what is it? What, do, what is, what are we feeling? So it's a, a small cafe that sits about 42, 44 people. Imagine there is a, a nice station where all the coffee, beverages, right at the counter, there's a cashier right there that you can get in and get out very quickly if you choose to. But there's also the sit down area, colorful, a lot of colors in there because I, I was pretty poor. <laughs> Whatever I could put it together, at that time, whatever I could afford, whatever I could remortgage my house with, that was pretty much everything was invested in that restaurant. I didn't have partners. I just have a loving family. My wife believes in me. My mother-in-law believes in me. My mother believes in me. And they gave me the opportunities to pursue this dream, to, to pursue this opportunity to see what I'm made of. And I don't know how I taught them into it, but I did. <laughs> well, you wanted it. Where was it? Uh, this is the city of San Gabriel. San Gabriel, okay. Yeah. How long did that restaurant stay open? Seven and a half years. So this story is fascinating to me. Tell me this transition, if it was, a, I'll call it seamless transition. Is it true like staff from Panda Corporate came in and like loved your food? and started using you to do things like event wise yeah you had it just you had it exactly because why is so important about this restaurant because it became my resume like an interview right to the job i have today yeah so the the restaurant was created in 2006 or 7 and then so funny enough there was a particular member from the panda organization came and and had a joined part of a party and he was fascinated by sort of who is this guy why is he opening a, a, 
a cafe in San Gabriel, but served this type of food. And he was just fascinated by it. And then he ended up meeting me, talking to me. And then he actually found me the opportunity to maybe do some catering jobs for Panda as a subcontractor, right? Which really helped the business, helped me to continue to sustain the business. Then next thing you know, hey, I'm, I'm seeing these groups of people coming in for business lunch. I'm seeing this group of people wanting to do birthday parties. And they're, they always seem familiar, but I don't quite know them. And later I find out they're all from the Panda Support Center, which is very nearby from my restaurant in the city of Rosemead. And then eventually the founders came over for lunch. And it was just these moments, little by little, kind of added up. And then I got to learn and meet so many different people from Panda in my early days of my restaurant. Hmm. So did you close Hot Stuff Cafe to take the job with Panda? No. So 2010, I became a culinary instructor at Le Coron Bleu, which is my school. It was a restaurant still open. Yes. I was actually trying to venture into a new opportunity, but also I really need to take care of my family, right? I need a stable income. So the restaurant became, not to say a side project, but it's it's running well, right? I, I have a team, a team that I trust, that they operate, but I'm also still the operator of the restaurant as well. So I would teach from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., then I will go run the dinner service, close shop, and get home and repeat the same process again the next day. Did that for several years, actually. And then you got this opportunity from Panda while you were te- while this was happening. Right. Uh, so at the school, at, at one point, decided that I want to close the restaurant because I want to spend a little bit more time with my father. He was sick. He was ill. And then also, it was just everything around me at that time is telling me that I need to let go of this restaurant because it's actually hindering from everything else of my life becoming better, right? I'm so focused on trying to keep the restaurant afloat. I'm losing a lot of time with my family. I am not at my best at a lot of different moments because I'm exhausted. And also, I couldn't really gave... I think this, the, the school was something that I'm very invested in. I wanted to educate people better, but I just didn't have the energy, right? I want to do more, but I couldn't. And then, so it felt right to just stop the business altogether and focus on the school. And then that happened in 2013. We shut down the restaurant. I, then I went on focus on the education on a full-time basis. And then 2014 came. And that was my first sort of opportunity working with Panda again on a something a little bit more serious. Now, I was brought on as a consultant for a project. And this project is the Innovation Kitchen in Pasadena that I mentioned earlier. Oh, cool. Yeah. So imagine our CBO, which is Chief Brand Officer, reach out to me. And during that time, she wanted me to help to design a different set of menu, a different way to approach Panda Express, maybe even slightly different service model. and But the idea is that this kitchen or this establishment will have this ever-changing opportunity, which means that every time we feel like changing something, we can. Every time that we want to add a new element, we can. Every time that we want to reconfigure the kitchen 
in terms of equipment and moving in and out of things to try. We can't. And it was unheard of. I was just like, what? How is this even possible, right? To for somebody to think it, that it, it is okay to do so, but also non nonetheless, a brand like Panda is well established, has a very sort of the client base is so stabilized, right? This will be scary, but yet the innovation ideas, the, the fact that Panda wanted to innovate really caught my attention. So I jumped on as a consultant and we built it out and literally we opened three and a half months later. Wow. How many restaurants did Panda Express have when you joined? Ooh, during that time, I would say maybe 2,000, a little under, 2000. something like okay. that. Got it. So you take this role consulting for the Innovation Kitchen, which leads to a more full-time role, I suppose. Did you ever question the move? No. I think I have always, when I decide on something, I'm very committed. I'm committed in the way that it has to be all the way through 100% level. And of course, it took some thinking. And then, of course, I talked to a lot of different people. Who do you go to for that? Like family, mentors, like what's your process? I think at that time, I, I had a few members from my team, my own family that I talked to. I actually, my wife to this day continue to be sort of, I, I would say she plays so many roles, right? She plays business partner, best friend. She's also the person that kind of slaps me and then just kind of wakes me up, make sure that I'm on the right track, right? So I definitely talked to her a lot. And then I talked to a few members that I know since 2007 from Panda and then talking to them, making sure that they share their perspective. I shared my perspective and then Ultimately, it, it was very simple. I, I think we align on the same thing. I think the pan, Panda cares about people. I do too. Panda wants people feel good. I do too. And Panda wants to com connect community. I do too. And finally, it's the last part, which is the, the real. And then one of the bigger piece was I want we both Panda and I both want people to know more about Chinese cuisine. Right. And then. And I thinking back, spending so much time studying French cuisine, cooking European style food, but I, I was never in the space where I'm focusing on the food I actually grew up with or the food that I am in touch with on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and how do I actually tell that story or how do I actually make food to tell those stories became a passion and mission of mine. I love it. And that's when I joined Panda. Well, this is a perfect segue. You mentioned being committed. You mentioned Panda caring. Perfect segue into the social impact section of the podcast. I, I think, as you know, we celebrate social impact with every one of our guests and kind of learning how they do it keeps us going, keeps us inspired, whether it's a chef and a certain cause that's meaningful to them or a different program, a chef or restaurant group or bartender, whatever may give their time or their money or their, vi or their voice towards. So I definitely want to give you a moment to talk about Panda Cares and the community and, and social impact work that Panda does. Well, thank you for that. At Panda, I think I'm personally connected to Panda Care. Panda Care was brought to life in 1999, actually. And the idea or the, the, the soul of it really is 
trying to provide the needs and, and support the well-being of a, of a child, right? In terms of health, in terms of education, in terms of things that can help this child or children to thrive, to become their best, to see their possibilities, not be limited. And, and, and I think that's the, the, the soul or the focus of, right, of Panda Care. And for myself, I, I was very connected to that because the story is when my daughter was almost one year old, we discovered that she has a murmur around her heart. And during that time, we were clueless and helpless on what to do, right? We, we just didn't know who to ask for help. And ultimately, we end up being at Children's Hospital. And I remember walking by a wing, and then this wing actually has a, a door. And right next to the door, there is a plaque that, that mentioned about Panda actually donated to this wing, actually helped to build this wing that helped to help children have surgery that's in need, right? And then so that was the first sort of that connection that I I didn't even know at that time that I would end up working for Panda, but and yet that was the presence. And then from that point, I knew that Children's Hospital works with Panda Care, right? And then from that point, when I joined Panda, I knew on top of what a Panda already does from Panda Care, I want to do more. So for many years now, during the holiday season, we do a fundraiser. My team, we cook food, we make delicious lunches, and then we just fundraise. And we fundraise whatever we can, and we give it to Panda Cares so that the children have something a little extra over the holidays, whether it's gifts, books, where there's any other things that they needed, I, I'm just compelled that I want to do more for them. And then that become a, a thing I do on a year-to-year basis now. What a beautiful thing. Thanks for sharing that. Can I brag a little more about Panda Cares? And for the listener, don't quote me on these numbers because in the wonderful world of giving and donating and numbers change, but some of the things I came across, which I think need to be relayed for the incredible efforts you all do. You guys had installed donation boxes at one point in all the Panda Express restaurants in 2010. And I've read that the charity raised $107 million with 89 million coming from these in-store donation boxes. Numbers like 41 million donated to a program called The Leader in Me, which teaches leadership and life skills in elementary schools and 39 states and to Chef's Point donated 37 million to Children's Miracle Network Hospitals to support medical costs for poor children and also support disaster relief efforts. So again, don't quote me on all these numbers and dollar amounts. I'm sure some of them may have changed, but even when we're into those types of dollar amounts, it's pretty extraordinary to hear of a restaurant group of any size doing this work to give back to people and communities all over the country. Yeah, yeah, everything you mentioned, totally accurate. It's still one of those things that I think 
majority of us are, are all very, very proud of on a day-to-day basis. It makes me feel good. I mean, look, I, I love going in to try new items and eat, eat the food at the restaurants and bringing my kids in there. But I try to instill this in my kids at a young age. They don't know what food waste is necessarily. But if I could tell them that there's people who don't have food or people that don't have a bed and things like this, and that we could go into a restaurant like Panda Express and they could put two and two together that the food they're about to eat or the company behind the food they're about to eat is such an important role, has such an important role in the community. It makes you feel good about eating your food, you know? Yeah, for sure. All right, let's do a quick speed round and then we'll close it out with a okay. question or two. Number one, what did you have for dinner last night? Oh, Super Bowl last night. <laughs> I had a Philly cheesesteak. Perfect. <laughs> Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Basically brown butter. Mm. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Ooh, I would say like a leftover food in the fridge. That's a good one. I don't think we've gotten that. That's a good one. What pisses you off in the kitchen? When I expect my towel to be on my right and it isn't there. <laughs> what makes you happy in the kitchen? I think it's when everybody is connected to what they're doing you know what i'm saying like they're 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 you can tell that they're focused they're connected so maybe focus like it can you name a go-to snack in your pantry go-to snack well today i i i always have roasted peanuts that's something that i do all the time all right and i've got to ask one more your go-to panda express order my go-to panda express order is serving orange chicken Oh, sorry. I should start from the sides, the base. I will like have fried rice, have super green. I will get a scoop, a serving of the orange chicken, and I will get a serving of black pepper Angus steak. That's my order. That may be my next my next order here very soon. I like it. <laughs> All right, let's close it out. You are responsible for the vision, future, as you talked about, growth and innovation. I'm curious, what's exciting this year or in five years that we can expect from Panda Express? I think I'm excited about us continue to look into how we can add new menu items that is gonna make us be more than just lunch and dinner, right? We're constantly thinking about how this idea of meal time has changed, right? And then, so I'm very excited that we're pushing the boundary. We're going to look into snack times. We look into opportunity that is not out of the, not the typical meal time period. Cool. Like so that. I'm very excited about that in there's a coming year. And then when it comes to the future, I'm still in the place of making sure that we are continuing to elevating what American Chinese food can be, what the cuisine should be focused about, and then that hopefully in the near future is that the next generations of customers or audience that they now can see the next improved version of American Chinese cuisine and then that they find connection just as if when I was a child or maybe when the last generation when they were younger and tasting the Panda Express in 1983. Awesome. Chef, I'm going to let you go. You probably have plenty of things to do. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. This was such an enjoyable conversation. I love what you stand for, what the restaurant group stands for, what your individual locations stand for. I could probably talk to you for a whole day on some of these little nuances and variables and, and things. And thank you. Thank you for all the work you do in the community. Thank you for 
the work you do for cuisine in general. And hopefully one of these days I would love to invite myself over to your innovation kitchen. <laughs> yes, yes, I would love for you to come by. We can spend more time and talk about many, many other things. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure to spend time with you and then, you know, tell a little bit about what Panda is. Awesome. Thanks, Chef. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Chef Jimmy Wang. Find Panda Express on Instagram at officialpandaexpress. You can also visit pandaexpress.com. To learn more about Panda Cares, go to pandacares.org. We'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes and at beyondtheplaypodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at Uncappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplaypodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Mee. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. And as always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you do have a moment, we'd love and appreciate it if you could rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gym. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.